Let's turn in our Bibles, please, to Job chapter 38. We come today to the last of our series on the book of Job. We remember the background of the book that Job uh, has undergone tremendous losses, the loss of his uh, wealth, the loss of his children, the loss of his health, as God challenged Satan with Job. Have you considered my servant Job? He's a just man, one who fears God and eschews evil. And Satan had said, uh, God, Job is not one who worships you for your own sake. He only worships you because you bless him. Let me take those blessings and he will no longer serve you. He will curse you. God said, that's a lie, Satan. And Satan said, let me prove it. And God said, all right, you can take all that he has. And so Job uh, suffers tremendously. Job's three friends come to seek to comfort him. And in the process, their approach is, Job, confess your sin now. You've done something horrible. Repent of it. Job says, no, I have not. They insist that he has. They say God would be unjust if he dealt with you like you've been dealt with if you had not done something terribly wrong. And Job begins to feel, well, then maybe God's unjust because I know from my own conscience, that I was serving him when all this happened to me. And uh, he begins to question God's dealings with him, and yet at the same time he's, he becomes more and more convinced that uh, God will vindicate him in the final day. I know that my Redeemer lives, that in the long run he will vindicate me, says Job. And though he slay me, yet will I trust him. But he the same time felt that God had aligned himself against him, that God was his enemy. So there's this, there's this development and tenacity and enlargement of faith, and yet there's this cloud, this great question that hangs still unresolved. At this point, a fourth friend, Elihu, speaks up, and Elihu says, Job, you, you didn't necessarily suffer because of sinning, but you've sinned because of suffering. As a result of your suffering, you've said rash statements about God. You need to repent of those. And uh, you need to be humble. And Job apparently acknowledges uh, Elihu's observations there. There's no answer to Elihu that Job gives. And also, Elihu says, uh, in effect, God is not your enemy. You shouldn't say that about him. And... Uh, God maybe is performing the portion of a surgeon with careful instruments as he wounds in order to heal, but he's not your enemy. The, the instruments that are being used against you are not the thrust of a deadly enemy. Job apparently acknowledges this, and at this point, God himself confronts Job. Job had wanted the opportunity to plead his case personally with God. Now he has it. And out of the whirlwind, God answers Job. And in chapter 38, we have the first part of that answer, as it's given in two parts. We have the first part and its effect on Job in 38, 1 through 45. 
introduction of this in 38, 1 to 3. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man. Roll up your sleeves. Put on your thinking cap. I will demand of thee, answer thou me. Calvin says we pick up what it is that God rebukes Job for in this introduction. Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? That Job has spoken rashly of things that were too high for him. Now, God's approach is to ask certain questions of Job that challenge Job's understanding. He says, Job, can you understand about the foundation of the world, how it was created, how it was brought into being, what it's hung on, how it stays there? In verse 4 of chapter 38, Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Verse 7, When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. All the angels rejoiced when God created the world. Were you there, Job? Uh, can you explain it, how it was done? How about the sea, the fact that the sea stays within its boundaries? Can you explain that or cause it to happen? Verse 8, Or who shut up the sea with its doors when it break forth as if it had issued out of the womb? Verse 11, And said, Hitherto shalt thou come, but no further, and here shall thou proud waves be stayed. What about the morning, Job? Verse 11, verse 12. Hast thou commanded the morning since thy days and caused the day spring to know his place? What about death? Verse 17. Have the gates of death been opened unto thee? Or hast thou seen the doors of the shadow of death? What about snow and hail? Can you explain these things? In verse uh, 22. Hast thou entered into the treasures of the snow, or hast thou seen the treasures of the hail? Then he challenges Job's power. Man's not only ignorant, man is powerless. And uh, he says, can you control the constellations, Job? In uh, verse 31 of that chapter, canst thou bind the sweet influences of Pleiades, or loose the bands of Orion? Canst thou bring forth Maseroth in his season, or canst thou guide Arcturus with his sons? Then he goes back uh, to the... Oh, can, another about power. Can you see to it that all the creatures are fed, that the balance of nature is maintained? In verse 41, he says, Who provideth for the raven his food when his young ones cry unto God? They wander for lack of meat. Then back to challenging Job's wisdom to understand the wild goats or to tame the unicorn or to give to the peacock his goodly wings. In verse 13 of chapter 39, he says, Gavest thou the goodly wings unto the peacock? Think of the design of the peacock's tail. Did you do that, Job? Can you explain how it happens? or wings and feathers under the ostrich? Or who designed the horse? Verse 19, Hast thou given the horse strength? Hast thou clothed his neck with thunder? All of these questions God asked Job. Now, how does this answer Job's question? Job's question was, 
Why do righteous men suffer? Why is God dealing with me like this? It doesn't seem fair. I want him to answer about the fairness of this. And God answers, but he doesn't say a word about the fairness. All he does is he displays the universe and says, Job, you understand that? Can you control it? Can you bring it into being? How does God's answer relate to Job's question? It doesn't. In the sense that God has no intention of vindicating his ways to man. You know, never at one time does Job, does God say, Job, let me explain the situation. Here's what happened. I was talking to Satan one day, and Satan said, and I said, and he said, and, I, and that's why it happened. God never does that. God just said, Job, can you control the constellations? Did you create the earth? You understand how it happened? You understand about the peacock? You don't. Well, then hush. God never places himself at the bar of man's justice to justify his ways. Who art thou that repliest against God? Who are you to question me? And that's, in effect, the approach God takes in answering. And the, the purpose isn't to vindicate God. The purpose is to rescue Job, to humble him for his rash statements and rash thoughts. And... Uh, in essence, uh, the, the, the answer is, where is your wisdom and strength? You can't answer these comparatively inferior matters. How do you expect to delve into the ways that I run the universe and my ultimate purposes, what I'm about? As a famous English preacher, Joseph Parker, put it like this. He says, what is the great answer to your trial, my trial, the universe, as it displays the wisdom of God? Uh, what is the great commentary on God? Providence, his control of everything, feeding the raven. What's the least profitable thing you and I can do? Enter into controversy with God, question his ways. That's, in effect, the answer that's being given here, the way God approaches this. What effect did it have on Job? You know, earlier Job had wanted to talk to God, and when he had, he'd spoken like this in chapter... 13, verse 22, he said in a strong voice, Then call thou, and I will answer. Or, let me speak, and answer thou me. That tone needed to change, didn't it? Let's see how his tone is now, after God has answered. In uh, verse 4 of chapter 40, you have the confession of his vileness, or his smallness. It says, uh, <clears throat> Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. I am vile. I am of small account, is the way some of the modern translations put it. His own smallness when compared to God's greatness as evidenced by the, by the Magnificent creation. I'm nothing. Goodness. Uh, my smallness, my ignorance. I will lay my hand upon my mouth. What shall I answer thee? My rashness. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer, yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. I did 
say all of these rash things, and I realize their rashness now. Calvin says, may we, have our, may we not have our mouths open to cough up everything which shall come to us in fancy. Let us learn from this to be careful before we express an opinion, to check it. So Job's been humbled. He confesses his vileness or smallness, his ignorance, his rashness, but he hasn't been humbled sufficiently. And so God gives a further answer, and it has a further effect. God's further answer in uh, chapter 40, verse 6, Then the Lord answered unto Job out of the whirlwind and said, Gird up thy loins now like a man. I will demand of thee, declare thou unto me. The question of Job's correction of God in verse 8. Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? Wilt thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? You say, you're innocent, and thus I must be guilty in dealing with you in the way that I have, unjust. So you, you condemn me and justify yourself. And you disannul my judgment, my running of the world. You question my control of the universe. Well, all right, you control the universe. Let's see if you're able. Let me ask you a few questions. Let me show you your inability to control the universe. Are you able to control man? Are you able to control beast? His inability to control man, verse 12 of chapter 40 where he says, Look on everyone that is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked in their place. Can you do that like I can do that? No, you can't, Job. You're not even able to control certain beasts. If you could control the man or the beast, I would confess to you that thine own right hand can save thee, verse 14. But you can't. He mentions several beasts. Behemoth and Leviathan. In verse 15, Behemoth. Behold now, Behemoth, which I made with thee. He eateth grass as an ox. Lo, now his strength is in his loins, and his force is in the navel of his belly. What would Behemoth be? The commentators have suggested a hippo, a hippopotamus. Why would they suggest that? Now look at verse 23. Behold, he drinketh up a river and hasteth not. He trusteth that he can draw up Jordan into his mouth. But look at verse 17. He moveth his tail like a cedar. Did you ever see a hippopotamus's tail? He moveth his tail like a cedar. I don't think it's a hippopotamus. What could it be? Well, Dwayne Gish and Henry Morris suggest a, a dinosaur. You say, but wait a minute. Uh, dinosaurs passed off the scene before man came on the scene. And I say, how do you know? <laughs> and you say, that's what my high school book said. And I say, have you seen uh, the movie Footprints in Stone that show a dinosaur's footprints and a man's footprints in the same strata? Have you seen the pictures of the drawings on caves where men dwelt in caves? And remember, David dwelt in a cave for a while, but men dwelt in caves and they drew pictures of animals. And some of those pictures are pictures of dinosaurs and they were drawing what they were looking at. 
What about Leviathan? Verse 1 of chapter 41, Canst thou draw out Leviathan with a hook? Can you go fishing and catch Leviathan? What is Leviathan? Well, look at the description of Leviathan. Uh, Verse 9, Behold, the hope of him is in vain. Shall not one be cast down even at the sight of him? None is so fierce that dare stir him up. And uh, verse 15, his scales are his pride, shut up together as with a close seal. Verse 14, who can open the doors of his face? His teeth are terrible round about. The commentators have suggested, have suggested a crocodile. But look at verse 18. By his kneesings a light doth shine, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning lamps, and sparks of fire leap out. Out of his nostrils... Go with smoke as of a seething pot or a cauldron. His breath kindleth coals, and a flame goeth out of his mouth. Sounds like a dragon. There's no such thing as dragons, are there? Dwayne Gish, in his book, uh, Dinosaurs, Those Terrible Lizards, a very great uh, book, interesting book, suggests this also is a dinosaur. You say, but how did the dinosaur breathe fire? And uh, he suggests that we might look at a little modern phenomenon called the bombardier beetle. There's a little beetle called the bombardier beetle that has the capacity to mix up chemicals and form an explosive mixture. And uh, this explosive mixture... uh, is contained in his body in a a little uh, container there, and he has two twin, he has twin combustion chambers. Now, this explosive mixture doesn't explode because there's uh, one further ingredient that's needed in order for it to, to actually ignite, explode. And uh, when he's threatened by an enemy, this little bombardier beetle suddenly squirts this fluid down into his combustion chambers, this one necessary ingredient is added, and blam, there's this tremendous explosion out of his rear end, and he frizzles any enemy that's approaching him of reasonable size. Now, uh, as flame shoots out the back. Now, uh, Dwayne Gish suggests that there could well have been some mechanism, some apparatus of that nature in uh, the nose of some dinosaur in the past, and that this is what you have here, and that this is where all the legends about dragons come from, that there was such a creature walking around, breathing fire. Uh, At any rate, God confronts Job with these two creatures, and he says, now, Job, can you control or tame them? But if you can't control man and you can't control beasts, then you're not able to assume the government of the universe. And if you're not able to assume it, then don't question my governing. And so the whole essence of God's approach is to set forth his perfections and man's utter insignificance in the light of it and say, who are you to question me? Now, the effect of this on Job in chapter 42 in verse 1 Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. 
his acknowledgement of God's omnipotence and his omniscience. You can do everything, and no thought can be withholding from thee. His acknowledgement of his own lack of understanding. You ask me, who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Me, says Job. Therefore have I uttered that that I understood not, things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. You said you would demand of me, and I was to declare unto you, well, I can't. I simply acknowledge my lack of understanding. But then not only the acknowledgement of God's greatness and his own lack of understanding, his own ignorance, but his enlargement of his comprehension of God. In verse 5, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee, wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. I had heard of thee with the hearing of the ear. I had some knowledge of you, but it was superficial compared to the knowledge that I have now. Now, he had great knowledge compared to other men. He had more knowledge of God than any man of his day. God said, Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him in all the earth. But compared to the knowledge he has now of God, Job says, I didn't know anything. And that's very important. We pick up that through this whole process, this awesome and awful process of testing, that Job has come to a much greater comprehension of God. So he's been blessed. Anything no matter how painful, that brings me into an enlarged comprehension of God, a greater appropriation of God, a greater understanding of Him, closer to Him. Anything that does that is a blessing. So Job says, I'd heard of thee by the hearing of the ear. Now mine eye seeth thee. I understand you so much more. And the result, wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's the way it is. The more I understand about God, the more I understand my own insignificance, my own utter dependence on Him, my own ignorance compared to His wisdom, my own sinfulness compared to His glory. You remember Isaiah? Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high, lifted up, sitting on a throne. The seraphim cried in his presence, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. What is, what is Isaiah saying? He's saying, if God is like that, I've had it. Exactly. You see, God is like that. God is holy. God is great. And we are sinful. We are men and women of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people, a sinful people. And if God's like that, we've had it. Until you understand that, you cannot become a Christian. The beginning of becoming a Christian. We must be unmade that we can be remade. We must realize our utter spiritual bankruptcy, that 
There's no way that I can stand before God and be accepted on the basis of the life I've lived. There's no way. If God's like that, I'm undone. He is like that. There's only one way that I can approach him. I need a go-between. There is a go-between. God has provided a go-between for those who understand that they can't approach him and take God's way. Don't think they can approach on the basis of their own goodness, their own sincerity, but acknowledge their utter sinfulness and trust in Jesus Christ as their approach. Well, and then as we grow, that's how you become a Christian, and then as you grow, the more we understand of God, the more we'll see our own sinfulness still and our own dependence on him. Now, Job has, has made tremendous progress here. He came in the process of his test to believe that though God was his enemy, yet still God would one day vindicate him. Now he has come to believe that whatever God does, it's right, period. And that God cannot do anything wrong because of who God is and what he is. He's, he's had a tremendously enlarged understanding of God. Nothing's changed. He's still suffering as he was suffering. He's still on the verge of death physically. But yet here's this confession and abasement of himself there. Now, we see God's answer to Job in the two parts and Job's reaction. You have God's confrontation of Job's three friends. In uh, verse 7 of chapter 42, And it was so, that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends. Why? For ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job had. What had they said? They had said that God always deals like this. He will not cause the righteous man to suffer to any great degree. And he will not prosper the wicked man. Job had said, you're wrong. God does let righteous men suffer. And that's the nature of my suffering, said Job. And God does on occasion prosper wicked men. The habitation of thieves prosper on occasion, said Job. God says, you have not spoken the thing that was right concerning me as my servant Job has. And we see that our basic approach to the book has been right. It's interesting also that uh, God doesn't say a word about Elihu, the fourth friend. So apparently Elihu had spoken differently than the other three, and had spoken right. And God's wrath is stirred against them. What a solemn thing it is to represent God and his ways to men. What an awesome thing it is, lest we misrepresent. And we do, on occasion. There's a lot of it going around today. There's a lot of misrepresentation of God's ways. 
in the same area that the book of Job dealt with. The idea is abroad that it's, that it's never God's will that any of his people suffer. That if you just walk with God and you really have faith, you'll prosper, you'll be blessed, you'll never be sick, etc., etc. You stir God's wrath against you, you teach that way. You have not spoken that which is right. Be careful how we represent God's ways to men. There was a remedy, praise the Lord. Verse 8, Therefore take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly, in that you have not spoken to me the thing which is right, like my servant Job. Now, the remedy was an animal sacrifice, a perfect offering, seven bulls, seven rams, seven the number of perfection. Why? How could that make up for their wrongdoing, for their sin? Suppose I, I went out and uh, killed someone, and then I took a dog and I cut his throat and I offered his blood to God. And I said, now, God, I'm offering this in atonement for my sin. Would that make atonement? Of course not. Well, how could these animals here make atonement? What could their blood do? Nothing. Their blood couldn't make atonement either. But their blood could picture the true atonement that God was going to make by sending the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ who would take away the sin of the world. That wrath due to them, which was hanging over their head, would fall one day on Jesus Christ, God's Son, who would come and die for their sin, just like he was dying for our sin. At a point in time, men sinned before then, men sinned after then, but the atonement was made at a point in time, for all time. And God is picturing his way of doing it. And as they use that way... They are appropriating it. That could do for a transaction between God and man, just like paper money, which has no value, can do for a transaction today. That could do for a transaction because of what lay behind it, the blood of God's Son that was to be offered according to God's plan and would make full atonement. So we have declared here the great doctrine of the atonement, how God forgives sins. When the New Testament sums up the teaching of the Old Testament, the book of Hebrews 9.22, it puts it like this, without the shedding of blood, no remission of sin. That's what the Old Testament taught, says the writer of Hebrews. A New Testament text that says the same thing, I am the way, the truth, the life, no man cometh unto the Father but by me that by Christ's death we approach God, and only through Christ can we approach God. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. That means putting our faith in Jesus Christ as the one who died for us, instead of trusting that we haven't been that bad or we somehow are going to improve ourselves. We trust Christ and we surrender to him as our master. Seek to obey him. That's how we 
receive forgiveness. That's the remedy. He also says, My servant Job shall pray for you, for him will I accept. Why, why attach their being forgiven to Job's intercession? Well, this puts honor on Job. It causes these men to have to humble themselves after they've said such hard things about Job. And it reconciles Job with his friends. They've got to come to him, and he's got to pray for them. And these men then are in the dust together before God, and yet they're arm in arm, and God forgives at this time as they are reconciled. We have to get right with man in the process of getting right with God. Now, we have God's confrontation of Job's three friends. Finally, God's turning of the captivity of Job. Verse 10, And the Lord turned the captivity of Job. In other words, he set Job free. He emancipated him. He healed him. He began the process of restoration. When did he do it? God turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Right at that point, these friends come to Job and they say, Job, Will you pray for us? Will you forgive us? Suppose Job said, No, you said some mighty hard things about me. I'm not going to forgive you. What would God say? All right, Job, just stay like you are. Remember Jesus said that unless we forgive those who trespass against us, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. You withhold blessings from yourself when you will not forgive. And as the pastor of this congregation who has counseled with many and many of you, a lot of you don't forgive. A lot of you don't forgive your husband, your wife, your dad, your child, your business partner, and you withhold blessings from yourself if we don't forgive. Crucial that we forgive. Essential. Now, you can kid yourself about it, but really forgiving is very costly but it's far more costly not to forgive. Suppose Job hadn't forgiven. When he does, then God turns his captivity. He emancipates him. He releases him. And uh, we have the process through which he does this, elaborated on. As uh, it says, in effect, that uh, in verse... 10, the last part, also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. He doubled everything. Then there came unto him all his brethren and all his sisters. Here's how he doubled everything. And all they that had been of his acquaintance before and did eat bread with him in his house, they bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Not accident, the Lord. Every man also gave him a piece of money and every one an earring of gold. Then God takes that financial resource and blesses it. Verse 12, So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep instead of 7,000, 6,000 camels instead of 3,000, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 she-asses. He also had seven sons and three daughters, same number, not 14 and 6. Why same number? Well, somebody said he still had seven and three in heaven, or 
as you read on, he's just to see not only these children, but their sons and their sons to the fourth generation. In all the land were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job. Verse 16, after this, Job lived a hundred and forty years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, even four generations. So Job died, being old and full of days. Notice verse 12. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. The latter end. There is a latter end. And it's always a grave mistake for us to pass judgment on the scope or meaning of what God is doing before the latter end, before the whole story's been told. And it'll never be told until we're with him in glory. We don't know all that the Lord is doing. There is a latter end, and always it's the long-run view. Through this long-run process, Job, who suffered terribly, more than you or I are going to suffer, was blessed wonderfully through this process. Always the latter end tells the story. Ben Hayden likes to tell the story about Donald Gray Barnhouse, the famous Presbyterian minister of the last generation, who on one occasion was preaching a series of services for a pastor. The pastor's wife was with child, and the child was due to be born any minute. And this got to be a sense of, uh, in a sense, uh, subject of humor in the meetings uh, night after night as the question would be raised, has it come, and so on, you know, and and uh, a lot of good-natured fun about it. The last night when uh, Barnhouse got ready to speak, the pastor wasn't there to introduce him, and so he assumed the baby had come, and he got up and smiled at uh, the congregation knowingly, and they smiled back, and he introduced himself and proceeded to preach. At the close of the, close of the service, the pastor snuck in and sat down, and, and uh, when he did, why, Barnhouse turned and smiled very knowingly, and all the congregation smiled. To close the service, the pastor came up to him and said, Would you come to me in my office? When they got there, he said, uh, We've had a mongoloid child. I haven't told my wife. I don't know how to tell her. Can you help me? And Barnhouse said, Well, the Lord has me here, I'm sure, for this. And he turned to Exodus 4:11. He read it. We you used this several weeks ago. Who made the deaf or the dumb? or the seeing, or the blind. Have not I, the Lord? And then he turned over to Romans 8:28. We know that all things, even a mongoloid child, all things work together for good to them that love the Lord, to them that are the called according to his purpose. And the pastor said, let me see that. I've never seen Exodus 4.11, and he read it carefully. Who made the deaf or the dumb or the seeing or the blind? Have not I, the Lord? He said, that's my answer. He went to the hospital, and his wife said, they won't let me see my baby. Why won't they let me see my baby? He said, honey, Exodus 4.11, who made the deaf or the dumb or the seeing or the blind? Have not I, the Lord? God has blessed us with a mongoloid child. She said, what? Let me see that verse. She read it, and then she cried real hard. And then she called her mother, 
She said, Mother, God has blessed us with a mongoloid child. Unknown to the pastor or his wife, in that hospital was a telephone operator who was very critical of Christianity. And the news got around the hospital about the pastor's wife had had a mongoloid child, and she thought, now we're going to see the real thing. We're going to see what Christians are made of when the chips are down. So she listened in on the conversation, and to her utter amazement, the wife said, Mother, God has blessed us with a mongoloid child. She couldn't believe it. That Sunday, the pastor preached. Unknown to him, as a result of the telephone operator listening in, there were 70 nurses from that hospital in the congregation when he preached. When he gave an invitation, 30 nurses responded to receive Jesus Christ. One mongoloid child, 30 nurses brought to Christ as a result. We never know what God is about. We don't know till the latter end. Great message of the book. Trust God. Trust Him. God is infinitely wise. God is infinitely powerful. He doeth all things well. And as we do trust him, there's a tremendous apologetic for the Christian faith, a tremendous vindication for the truth of the reality of a relationship with God that makes a difference in how you face everyday life. It comes out. It shines forth. Our light is shining out as we go through trials and we trust the Lord. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Our own faith is developed in the process, in the very struggle to keep on trusting God in the face of it. Our faith grows and other graces, other, other Christian characteristics are developed in us, which is very important. And in the long run process, our view of God, our understanding of God, our comprehension of God, our relationship with God is enlarged and we are blessed. Makes an awful lot of difference if we believe that that when these trials come, they are accomplishing something wonderful for us. Edith Schaefer, in her book on affliction, says this, There is an inner excitement in the midst of stringency and hardship as a gymnast is preparing for the Olympics. Similarly, affliction, with the goal ahead understood and vividly in sight, is a different thing from the blind, dogged suffering of prisoners in a chain gang being whipped with no hope of anything beyond the present ugliness. It makes so much difference in the way you view the affliction. What about it? Are you trusting God? Are you being enlarged in your apprehension of him? I had heard of thee with the hearing of the ear, but now mine eyes seeth thee. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent. I repent of questioning you. I trust you. Have you ever made that initial discovery of his holiness and your sinfulness, your need of a mediator, a sacrifice, the Lamb of God? Why not make that commitment to Jesus Christ? If you've never done that, receive him into your life. Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed, if you have not been forgiving someone 
really forgiving them. Why not do that in your heart? Pray for that person. Pray God's blessing on that person. If you have been questioning God's dealings with you, why not repent of that and tell him you trust him? If you've never received Christ, why not do that right now? Pray in your heart like this. Lord Jesus, I had heard of thee with the hearing of the ear. Now mine eye seeth thee. I understand my own sinfulness, my need of your mediation. And I trust you as the one who died for me, paid the price for my sin. I surrender to you as my master. I will seek to obey. Come into my life. Amen.